Lord, again, I thank you for your holy scriptures. I pray now for your help as I preach, and I ask for each one of us this day that you would increase our faith, that we would trust in you as our sovereign Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you notice uh, anything out of order, it's because we had a bunch of kids living in here this week, and so we're putting church back together. And uh, Jim is traveling at a conference, so thank you, Jonathan, and, uh, and you guys for leading us in worship this morning. We are now in our third week of a preaching series on King David, the life of King David that we've entitled Honest to God. And this morning, as you just heard read, we have the story of David and Goliath. And it's sometimes tempting with something as big as that story to think of it like fiction, like a story that's made up, or, or just useful for children's curriculum, but not really for adult teaching or church or, or faith. And I, this morning, as I come across this, um, I'm looking at verse 47, where David says, the battle is the Lord's. And I think that's an important teaching to understand. And I don't think of this story as fiction. This truly happened. And it's not surprising because God has done some amazing things. And to have a shepherd boy take out a giant warrior is um, fitting for our God. It is what he does. He is a God who can conquer giants and does do so. But I want to ask this question of us this morning. Do we believe that God is sovereign? And now you'll all nod your head and say, yes, of course, I believe God is sovereign because that's the right answer in church. However, I'll ask it a different way. Do your actions show that you believe God is sovereign? If you believe God is sovereign, you do your part in serving him and obeying him when he calls you to act, and then you put your head on your pillow at the end of the day and you sleep soundly, knowing that he is not sleeping, that he is the one who is still working, and the battle and the war are both his. If you don't believe God is sovereign, what you do is you have anxiety, and you have fear about the issues, and you, you obsess, and you don't sleep, and you're worried, and you are taking on to yourself something that only God can carry. It's a burden too great for you. To understand that God is sovereign and to trust Him gives great freedom and great peace. And we can live in a better way if we entrust our lives to God. So that's why this morning I'm calling forth trust and increase in faith. I'm asking the Lord to increase our faith today. Now, with this account of David and Goliath, I'm going to take three approaches. And I think all three of these are useful, all three are necessary, and I, I, before I would go to the third of these, which I'll explain in a minute, I think the first one is important. The first one is, I'm looking at it from God's story, David's story, and then our story. And God's story is a sure pattern of salvation. And I'll put that up there. God's story, a sure pattern of salvation. And I think getting the big narrative, the meta-narrative, as they say, of God's salvation is important so that we can then take away what is our part in the ongoing story of the people of God serving him in this world. We are still living in that time where history hasn't totally been done. It's not complete. We are still doing God's work now. I like the church planning group called Acts 29 because they're writing the 29th chapter of the book of Acts. It's being still played out. So we want to understand the big picture before we can take away some personal things. When you read the account of David and Goliath, you should see a couple of things that maybe if you know your Old Testament, 
um, look familiar. For instance, the number 40, or the idea of a giant, a very tall man living in the land of Canaan. These things are repeated in the pattern of how God saves, a sure pattern of salvation. Remember back in the book of Numbers, when God was telling them to go into this land he would give them and displace the people, Moses called up a a spy from each of the 12 tribes and said, go into the land, search it out, see if it's a good land, see how strong the people are, bring back some fruit and report to us. And when they come back, 10 have a bad report and two have faith in God. And I'm just, I'll read you briefly from, read to you from Numbers 13. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And so they, they brought a bad report. The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. There are giants there, in other words. And it says, we seemed as grasshoppers compared to them in our own eyes and in their eyes. That was their report coming back. They're this big and we're grasshoppers. Meanwhile, God had commanded them to go in and said, I'm going to give you this land. I'll displace the people. And they grumbled against Moses and they said, we're going to get wiped out. Forget Moses. Let's raise up another leader who can bring us back into Egypt. And they grumbled against God. And so the result was the number 40. You will spend 40 years hanging outside of the promised land in the desert until this generation dies away and Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who believe, you and the next generation will lead us in, which is exactly what happened. There's a huge giant and 40 years in the wilderness. This pattern plays out a couple of ways. Now here we've got 40 days. Uh, We didn't read this part because the narrative is too long, but in 1 Samuel 17, verse 16, it says, for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Every day for 40 days he came out and said, fight against me. Stood there looking impressive, and Israel and Saul were in terror and trembled. And so Saul experienced 40 days of judgment for not being the leader of his military, not being the king they wanted, and not going out and fighting the fight. Remember, when Saul was picked to be the king, he was a head taller than everyone else. He was Israel's giant, and God anointed him for a task, and he didn't trust God. And so for 40 days, he stood there, afraid to go out and fight the fight that God had given him, and he bribed his own army. Hey, would any of you go and fight him for me? Listen, if you do, I'll give you my daughter in marriage. I will take away taxes for your family for the rest of your lives and I'll give you great reward and riches. Anyone, anyone. But who's going to go and fight when your, your king and military leader who's a head taller than you and the strongest guy in the army is terrified? He has sown fear throughout the people of God instead of faith and trust. And it's not until this shepherd boy shows up who didn't see the first 39 days or the first 40 days. On the 41st day, he shows up and hears this, and he is incensed that this has happened. He can't believe this has gone on. And so God uses him to bring deliverance. Now, again, there's another giant. If you want to fast forward in this pattern of God's salvation, the giant of Satan and sin in the world. And we've got Jesus, the one that God raises up, 
driven out for 40 days of fasting as his ministry begins, anointed with the Holy Spirit, just like Saul, just like David, and he goes out and defeats Satan in those temptations and goes on to defeat sin on the cross and brings victory and inspires the people of God. Do you see this sure pattern of salvation? There are giants, there is a period of judgment, and there's a deliverer. We see this in the scriptures over and over and over again. Now, I feel like in order to take away some examples from David of how to live and what we can learn from him, we have to set that context right. We have to understand that we don't always identify with the protagonists in these narratives. Because when we read it, almost every time you've ever heard this story, it's be like David. You know, I I like the bracelets, what would Jesus do? And there's some real benefit in that because we are called to Christ-likeness. But there are certain instances when what would Jesus do doesn't apply to us. What would Jesus do? Well, he would live perfectly, he would do miracles, and then he would go and atone for his people by dying in their place on a cross. We're not Jesus, we are his servants. We are the ones that he has saved. So we probably more often than not should identify with Israel standing on the hillside afraid, crying out for help, and then God sends a deliverer who is Jesus, the son of David, who comes and fights for us and gives us victory. That is a much better picture. So I feel like we have to set that as the first approach to this and with a caution to not identify with the hero and say, I'm going to be the hero of my own story because we serve and worship a Savior who saves us. So now the second thing. So there's God's story. The second thing is David's story, which is faith in a trustworthy God. I've been watching a lot of war movies lately and um, World War II, and I've, I've been I've sort of been taken aback by how much waiting there is in war. Not just back in the military compound to get to war, but once the lines head up to actually fight, there are these stalemates where the Germans are in their trench, the the Allies are in their trench, they can see each other, they can fire a couple shots, but they can't, no one can attack because the fool who steps out of his trench and tries to run gets gunned down before he even gets halfway across the field. It's a standoff, a stalemate, and something has to break that. That's the situation David and the army were in, Saul and the army were in. They had this valley with two very high sides to it, and the armies had come out to fight, and there was a big valley, uh, big high part, and then down to a valley, which is where David got the rocks, and then back up to the other side. And the, the army that charges ahead is at a, such a significant disadvantage because now they're going to have to run uphill to fight against their opponent. And neither one wants to take that many casualties. And so they're just stuck, and each day goes on. And so oftentimes in this kind of military uh, conflict, the generals will decide, let's send out one champion from each. They fight, and we'll spare all of the loss of lives. Whoever wins gets the day and gets the army, and we will be your slaves. Instead of half of us die on this hillside, and then we still end up being, somebody's going to end up the loser. So let's just do it this way. And so that's the scenario. They send out their champion, this Goliath of Gath, and he stands there 10 feet tall, looking impressive and intimidating Israel. It's a powerful thing. And, you know, frankly, the fight is pretty quick. He walks up, throws a rock, hits him in the head, knocks him out, goes over, pulls his sword off of him, cuts his head off, holds it up, and it's so inspiring that then Israel runs because the Philistines are taken aback and they're not ready to fight anymore, and they flee. And Israel has a great victory. But the narrative spends a great deal of time going through two main speeches of David. The first speech is when he comes and meets with Saul about this. 
He shows up there on that 40th day, and he's saying, why are we letting this this uncircumcised Philistine come up onto our side. He's now crossed the, but he's starting to come up towards us. He's intimidating. He's, he's deriding our God, and he's, he's cursing us, and he's putting us to shame. Why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing this? And he's, he keeps saying this until they finally say, they tell Saul, and he says, bring him over here. Remember, he was so afraid and had tried for 40 days to get someone to fight that he's now willing to let a shepherd boy who's a teenager go and do it. And, and it's embarrassing that this, this boy has faith and the others don't. Now, I don't know if you read Malcolm Gladwell. He's um, a, a popular author these days. has written a number of books. He has a book called David and Goliath. And while I like the idea of the book, which is sometimes your strength, your apparent strength is actually a weakness, and your apparent weakness can be a strength. Uh, and the book is great, except for his interpretation of David and Goliath, for which it's named. He makes the claim that David actually had a, an unfair advantage over Goliath. He broke the rules of war, in which there are infantry, cavalry, and artillery. And this infantryman comes out expecting another infantryman to come out, so they have a hand to hand combat with swords and javelins and shields. And the reason that Goliath has a shield bearer go before him is so that he's holding a spear, a javelin, and he's holding his sword, and he's in his armor, and he's not particularly mobile because that he's not quick. And down there in the valley, he's vulnerable to the archers and the slingshot throwers. So if they start shooting arrows, his shield bearer can come back and they can duck under this six foot or eight foot tall shield, hide, dink, 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 all the arrows hit off of it, and then he stands back up very easily. So we've got an artillery person coming out against an infantryman. But you see, the thing about it is, the narrative tells us how ironclad this man was. He had a helmet on. He had a coat of mail. He had leg guards, arm guards. He, all, he was just covered in metal. And what does David have? He doesn't have anything except a slingshot and a shepherd's pouch, and he picks five stones to put in it. And you need to not think, don't think of slingshot like this. One eye, I'm zeroing, I see Gary, I've got my thumb on him. Okay, right between the eye. Don't think like that. That's not how they worked. They had a big leather strap, too, and they would put a rock in it, and they would begin to swing it like this, okay? And then when it got going fast enough, he would let one end of it go and hold on to the other end of the leather, and the rock would come flying out. That is a low probability shot at best. Don't try it at home. (laughs) But David had practiced, and others practiced, and they got pretty good at it. They could hunt this way. David had hit a lion with it. He'd hit a bear with it. He could fight with this. But keep in mind, he doesn't just have to hit a giant. He has to hit a giant pretty much square here because everything else is covered with a helmet, a shield, everything. And because he is so uh, small compared to this giant, the giant is, he's gotten arrogant. He's puffed up. 40 days he's intimidated. He's no longer even afraid. And so his shield bearer is not protecting him. He's not cowering down. He's crying out curses. And David gives two speeches. The first is to Saul. Listen, God has delivered me from lions and bears, and this will be no different. God will deliver me. And then when he gets out there and the Philistine curses him, he then says, I'm going to hit you between the eyes. I'm going to cut your head off, and then I'm going to feed your army to the wild animals because God, I come with you. I come to you with God. You come to me with a sword and a javelin and your strength. I come in the power of Almighty God. 
The speeches are what's so important in here. And the point is, the battle is the Lord's. In both of his speeches, that's what David says. It's God's battle. And so again, do we trust God's sovereignty for the outcome? He only has five stones, and it only takes the first one. He doesn't even have a sword. You know, he knocks the the giant down, and he has to borrow his sword to finish the job. Like, that is total trust in God. And the the giant is just so, so proud. It is God that helped David hit that shot. It wasn't an easy shot. David relied on God's previous help, the lion and the bear. He was anointed by God for this task. And David was about to become a folk hero. And God was raising him up to supplant Saul because Saul was found to be faithless. And God sought David, a man after his own heart. So we have to remember in the bigger narrative, David was uniquely experiencing something where God was moving in his life to get him into not only Saul's house, that had already happened through his, his ability to play music, but now into Saul's army so that he could start to lead the people of God. God raised him up. And the scriptures are filled with passages that tell us God humbles the proud and he raises up the humble. David comes very humbly but confident in God and God raises him up. Now, that's David's story. Now, let's look at our story, the third one. So, we've got God's story, a sure pattern of salvation. We have David's story, faith in a trustworthy God. And then we have our story, which is that we are already more than conquerors. We are already more than conquerors. And that's because we're looking at this from the other side of the cross, And when you study the scriptures, you have to read them backwards. You have to look ahead and see what happens and then see what the rest of it means. We get the vantage point of this side of the cross. We see who the son of David is and what he's done to deliver us. We know how the battle ends and the war. God wins and all on his side are victorious. So he can say now we are more than conquerors in Christ. Now in our times, it's an interesting time to be a Christian. It's not going to get easier for those who want to follow the Lord. You know, a a lot of us are anxious. A a big decision was made in our country that was not a legal decision. It was a moral one, and it was a political one, and it's painful. And it's going to put Christians who really want to honor God into a very small subset of society, and I suspect we're going to be challenged. But whether it's a big thing like that or it's a personal thing you're dealing with, now, again, the question is, do you believe that God is sovereign, that he actually is the Lord of your life, He knows where he wants your life to end up, and he will make sure that it gets there. And he will use various things to do that. Do you you believe that is true? Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So now, I feel like we can look back to David for a second and see some things about how he trusted God that would be useful for us to copy. Because, although I just said, don't put yourself in the place of the hero, The book of Hebrews says all of these accounts are given for us as examples. Of course, we look to the one who perfected our faith and the founder of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. But there are some examples in here that we can take forward. So I just want to point out three of them very quickly in closing. The first is this. Remember what God has done in your past battles. Look back to where God has moved in your life. See how he worked Remember what it felt like before you knew what was going to happen? And then remember what it felt like after the event and you looked back. It's important to remember what God has done. God made a big point of telling his people, tell the stories of how I've delivered you. Tell it to your children. Let them know. 
Tell people what God has done in your life. Remember what he has done. And when you get that vantage point, whatever the current battle you're dealing with is, doesn't look so bad. David had confidence because he had walked in faith and he had seen God protect him and deliver him while he was alone on the field with the sheep. Lions, no problem. Bears, no problem. Giants, okay, I guess, no problem. God's with me. I know how this works. He remembered what God had done in his life, and that gave him the confidence for this next challenge. The same should be true for those of us who know him. Second, I think it's interesting that he, he fights with his own equipment. Saul tries to put his armor on him, and David can't even move around on it. You know the proverbial statement, Saul's armor. Don't get caught up in fighting your challenge with somebody else's methods. He knows how to use a slingshot. He's practiced in it. He, God, has, God has given him experiences to prepare him for this. When you come to a battle, you are prepared for it because God has given you experiences for it. He won't give you something that you can't handle. I don't know what's going on in your lives. You know, God knows, but he has been preparing you for this day. Remember that. And then thirdly, be vocal about your faith. It will inspire others. David came and said, I'm trusting God. He's sovereign. And when he said that, it inspired the rest of the army. They began to feel hope rise up. Wait a minute. Yeah, God did call us to this. Yes, we've seen God do amazing things. It began to inspire others and encourage them. And when finally he he conquered the Philistine, the army didn't even think twice. They charged down the hill and at personal risk ran up the other side and took out the other army. Be vocal about your faith. It will give courage for other people. I think about the book of Daniel and the, the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, before the, uh, the terrible um, king who set up a big thing, a, a, a monument to himself, and expected all of his subjects to bow down to it. And they refused. And they say such, such a powerful thing to him. They say, I don't, that, I don't know. You're going to throw us in the fire. I don't know if we'll live or not. I know our God can deliver us, but we will not bow down. And when they speak that out, it incenses him, and he heats up the fire so hot it burns other people and then throws them in. God does deliver them in that instance. But that bold trust that we are going to worship God inspired everyone in there who heard that. Be vocal about your faith. So remember what God has done. Use the experiences and the tools God has given you for the fight and be vocal about your faith. I think these are a few things we can take away from David's story and make them part of our story and help us. But the main point here is that the battle belongs to God, and so does the outcome. So let's trust him. In closing, I want to read something to you. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword, or a Supreme Court ruling, or fill in the blank? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I've asked you to increase our faith. And your word tells us that faith comes from hearing the word. Inspire us this day. Help us to trust you. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we have doubted and feared or when we've tried to do it in our own power. Lord, I I hold up before your throne your people gathered here in this room. 
You know every challenge facing them. And you know the bigger ones we face as your people in this world. Give us faith to follow where you lead the way. We're trusting you for the outcome. And we thank you that you've made us conquerors in Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.